Hi, and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I am your host, David Nelson. And today I'm thrilled and excited to have my guest, Dr. Christy McClamrock today. Welcome, Dr. McClamrock. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm going to tell everybody a little bit about you because many of my guests come from the Midwest uh, and you're not from the Midwest and you've got quite a background and I want to tell everybody about you. Dr. Christy McClamrock is an infectious disease epidemiologist who lives in the Bay Area. She earned her bachelor's of science in mathematics and her master's of public health in epidemiology at the University of Michigan and her doctorate in epidemiology at the University of North Carolina. She has experience working in New Orleans, Detroit, Albany, New York, as well as Madagascar, Cameroon, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Haiti. She has worked in HIV surveillance in academia as a director at a nonprofit organization and as a consultant. She is currently the executive director of a new organization called Public Health Connected, which equips people with tools to protect their health and the health of their communities while also meeting their other needs. You know, I'll say this, Christy, you're my first guest that has experience from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Well, then I'm glad to represent DRC. <laughs> right on. But we're here to talk about Public Health Connected, and we're going to get into that. But I always start with the origin stories. So you get to start anywhere you want. Okay. Tell us your origin story, how you got to where you are today. Okay. And let us know who you are. Yes. Well, thank you. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start my origin story at my birth to let you know that I actually am from the Midwest because I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so you've managed to have someone with a Midwest connection once again on the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, Michigan is dear to my heart. So I will, I will move ahead a bit from, from my birth uh, and, and not uh, start, not continue there. But um, yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, I was thinking about this question, how I got to this place in my career. And I think it's such a great question. It's such a great thing for me to take a little space for myself to think about. Um, you know, and where I am in my career really is, I'm in a place where I'm thinking a lot about decision-making around health. So how did I get to a place in my career where I'm thinking about decision-making around health? So I think that's actually a function of both my professional trajectory, but also my personal growth. So I wanted to say a little bit about each of those. Um, I'll start with the professional piece. So uh, my, you said, you mentioned that my, my bachelor's degree was in mathematics uh, at the University of Michigan. And my love of math really came from my dad. My dad um, was a aerospace engineering professor at U of M and um, played math games with me from the time I was you know, very little, uh, really instilled a love of math and, and logic, um, which, you know, has affected all the things that I've done has been a, has been a part of all the things I've done. So um, I got my math degree in applied math because I, I really wanted to see how math, you know, what the applications were of my work. Um, I had the chance to do my senior project um, with a group that included some epidemiologists. So that was my first introduction to public health. We were, uh, we were creating mathematical models to look at HIV transmission. Um, and I mean, I think, I think that the reason that that ended up being so interesting to me and why, why I shifted away from math and into epidemiology um, you know, again, it, it, in some ways it goes back to my parents, right? My parents are, um, they're progressive parents. They instilled in me values of 
service and volunteerism and equity and equality. Um, and so I, I really, as much as I wanted to, to get into the math side of things, I really also wanted to feel like I was doing something that made a difference in people's lives. And, and that's why epidemiology was such a good fit for me. So I got my master's, as you said, uh, in epidemiology at U of M. And I worked in New Orleans. You mentioned that. I worked in New Orleans uh, for a little while. I actually had the opportunity to do some contact tracing. Um, and I think, you know, I think people are more aware now of what contact tracing is in the context of COVID-19. This was contact tracing um, uh, for sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. Um, so chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be working in the ninth ward uh, in New Orleans, um, which really gave me uh, a good view of where there was a lot of, you know, there's a lot of public health need. Um, and this was, you know, before Katrina. So before it, it sort of changed the old version of the ninth ward. Um, and I worked in HIV surveillance in Detroit for a little while, um, which was also a great experience to, you know, I, I, I mean, I had grown up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I needed to expand my view of the world, right? Um, that not all places are like where I grew up and, and that was important. Uh, let's see, I, I decided that I wanted to get my PhD in epidemiology. So I moved to North Carolina um, and I was really lucky to get connected with a professor there who was working internationally. I had no experience working internationally. I didn't even have any interest in working internationally, but she had an opportunity for me to go to Madagascar. And it, it, I think I surprised all the people in my life because they were like, Christy, that's not you. That, that doesn't seem like a very you thing to do. And, and it was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be brave. <laughs> I'm gonna take a deep breath. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna do this. So yeah, I got to work in Madagascar. I got to work in Congo and Cameroon, and and um, those were amazing experiences. And and so the first sort of sort of piece where I can look back and see decision making show up is is my dissertation did have a cost effectiveness analysis in it, and it had um, some decision tree related stuff. Um, this was in the context of uh, clinicians making treatment decisions, uh, STD treatment decisions for commercial sex workers. Um, but you know, it, was, it was the first time that I started thinking about you know, people, people having to make some decisions in, in the context of public health. So um, I went on to work at University at Albany, a professor in the epi department. Um, and that was great because I got to teach the advanced quantitative methods class, which kind of got me back to my, my, mathy, my mathy roots. <laughs> um, and I also started working uh, with the gang prevention program there. I had been working in Haiti and then I got married and I had a child and I realized that traveling to Haiti um, was not, it wasn't gonna work with my, with the changes that I'd made in my life. So that's where I started working with the gang prevention program and, and uh, created a couple of um, youth development programs for, for youth in, in Albany. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was really a, a kind of a, a life-changing experience for me. I made a lot of connections with with the kids in the program. Um, I actually, I have a tattoo on my shoulder uh, that has the, the logos from those two programs to sort of honor, honor those youth that I worked with. Um, uh, anyway, I, so I mean, I've done a lot of different things and then I, and then I was able to take those programs uh, to a nonprofit organization. Um, and that's when I worked, I worked there as the uh, director of youth development. So when my husband let me know that he had gotten a job in the Bay Area and it was like, okay, I think we're moving to the Bay Area. I was really happy to be able to pass those two programs off to a nonprofit organization 
that, that had a structure and had people who could take it and continue it. That was really important to me. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, here we are now in California. Um, I got here, I decided not to immediately get a full-time job. I wanted to focus on my family and the transition and my health and my, you know, my mental health. And um, so I've done some consulting here. I did some consulting at the Office of Diversity and Equity at the local health department, which was exciting. Um, I also started writing a book with a, a friend and a colleague of mine who was in Michigan, who's on, who's in the Midwest, um, about, it's a high school textbook about using epi tools to help students think critically about health information, to help them make informed decisions about their health. Um, so that's really when I started thinking about, again, thinking again about this issue of decision-making. Um, and, and that kind of takes me up to when the pandemic started and then there were like a lot of things that started happening. But I also wanna go back for a second and just make some comments about my personal growth that I think has helped me get to this point. Um, I think, so I think about all the decisions and all the choices that I've made in my own lifetime to get me where I am today. And I think some of those decisions have had, you know, minimal impact. And some of those decisions have had, you know, huge impact on my, on my direction. And for me, I really, I try not to think of my choices as good choices or bad choices to not put judgment on them. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're choices and they're going to lead me in one direction or the other. Um, you know, there's always an opportunity for course correction, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so I, you know, it's choices about all these different things. I mean, whether it's like what I eat for breakfast or, you know, whether I move to California. Um, so there are all these different, all these different ways that I see this, I see this in myself. Um, I think some of my choices have been kind of consistent with my core values and my goals. And, you know, sometimes they're not in line with my core values and my goals. And, and those are then the, the, the choice points where hopefully after some time I'll see that and then I'll kind of bring things back around. Um, but I know for myself uh, that a lot of the choices I've made have been, some of them are based on like my curiosity about the world, you know, uh, both the, the world outside, but also my own inside world. Um, choices made on my like creativity or my dedication to learning, um, my appreciation of things that are, are logical and sensible and make mathematical, you know, all the pieces fit together. Um, but I also have struggled with anxiety and depression and chronic pain for most of my life. And I'm, I'm really, I've started to see how much a lot of my decisions have, have, uh, been based at least in some part on, on those three things. And, you know, that's, to me, that's one of the really sort of pernicious things about all three, chronic pain, anxiety, and depression. Um, they often start influencing the choices that you make in ways that, you know, you're often not even conscious of. So I've been re really thinking about this a lot, um, about a year and a half ago, we had a crisis in my family and my anxiety and my depression and my chronic pain shot way up. Um, and I, I'm pretty good about asking for help when, when I need help, which is, mm -hmm. I'm grateful that for that part of myself. Um, so I was able to start on some new medication, which helped lower all three of those things because they all, they all intersect, right? They all feed off of each other. Um, I started taking a dialectical behavioral therapy class mm -hmm. um, and I've been learning these specific tools to help me regulate my emotions, to help me uh, tolerate my own distress, to be more mindful of the things in my life, to, to work on you know, the effective communication skills um, with, the, with the people that I, that I interact with. Um, so I just, I just wanted to say that one of those skills is the stop skill. It's, um, so you stop, you take a step back, you observe, 
and then you proceed mindfully. Mm-hmm. And so I know now that when I sort of slow things down enough to take that step back, when I listen to my body sensations, uh, when I proceed with mindfulness, I'm actually able to sort of take the driver's seat again so that anxiety and depression and chronic pain aren't, aren't driving my decisions. So I say that, yeah, go ahead, David. You're going to say something. You know, I love this story and this narrative because it's uniquely you. I love the fact that your your dad was a rocket scientist. My dad was a rocket. Yes, he was. Yes. He he was the real deal. Right. And he he instilled in you this idea of uh, rocket science is like, yeah, we want a pretty low p-value on that one or a pretty high p-value on that one. We don't want the rocket to fall out of the sky. Yes, absolutely. And there is certainly math in that, but I love your, also your description around decision-making because that gives me, I've known you about six months now and, and uh, we can talk about that as, a, as an aside. How does Nelson know this, this person? Right, out in yes. <laughs> but the idea of the work that I do around cl- the clinical space and the community space. Yeah. I was thinking as you were talking that, the world that we live in is not dichotomous. No, it's not an either or, but it's a it's more ephemeral and it's moving and it's dynamic. Absolutely. And the idea of of anxiety, depression, and chronic pain can come up way high, or we can bring it down kind of to a quiet hum. Mm-hmm. And and I think the idea of what you're striving to do, and and I do believe strongly that we are the sum total of all the experiences in our life, big and small. Absolutely. Uh, Which is why I can relate to people who work in a factory, because I worked in a factory. I worked in fast food. I worked in a nursing home as as an orderly. And so I can talk to orderlies, and I I know what they do. I've done it. And and so um, that these experiences help us to relate to others. Absolutely. And I think it's important in your work that you're going to be talking about this idea of relatability. I don't know that's a word, but that it's a word now. It should um, be. <laughs> yeah, it well, is now. it should be because it, it helps us to see who you are. Yeah. Yeah. What did you, what did you, what do you take from your, your parents that you use today? That's a great question. Um, You know, my parents are, uh, my parents are are kind people Mm. and they're people who care about others. Um, And I I think that's something that I have definitely learned from them. Um, They're also, they're both creative. I mean, I mentioned that what my dad does, my mom, they're both retired now, but my mom was an elementary school librarian. Mm. And so, you know, there was this care in, in how she interacted with her students. Um, actually, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't ever thought about this until right this second, but one of the things that I, that I loved that my mom did was, you know, a student would come in, a kindergartner would come in and say, you know, I'm looking for a book. I'm looking for this kind of book, you know, I'm interested. She'd say, what are you interested in? And they'd tell her what she'd interested, what they were interested in. And then she would go and she would pick out a book that fit what, what, you know, who they were, right? These are her students. So she knew them and she knew what they were looking for and she, she knew what they might like. And so she would give them sort of tailored book suggestions, right? And, and, and then it would feel great when a kid would take a book home and then they'd return it and they'd say, you know, Mrs. McClamrock, this was a great book. Like, think, you know, can you find me something else like this? And, and I think she, I think she really took the time to listen to people and to be very responsive. Um, I think that's part of what made her a great librarian. And, and I find myself doing some of that now as well, where, I mean, I really do want to, I really do want to respond to people's specific needs and not, not sort of assume that the same thing is going to work for everybody. Um, yeah, that, thanks for that question. I that's you know, I'm also gonna say you are kind. Thank you. I I definitely uh 
I definitely try to be, and I remind myself a lot to approach the world with kindness and compassion. I think it's really important. I have a card over my desk and my, my listeners know this, it's called grace. I need a lot of it, so I got to give a little bit of it. So it's that idea of grace, lots of grace, especially in the, in, in the pandemic and the post-pandemic world. Oh, yes, it's been, yes. <laughs> yeah. I want to come forward because yeah. it's this idea of the idea of public health connected. It is yeah. so in line with who you are and what you've done. And we didn't even go into, we didn't nearly go into the depth of, about some of this idea of our own contact tracing and stuff. But tell us about Public Health Connected. What is it? Yeah. So Public Health Connected, um, it's, it's this it's new nonprofit organization. We actually just got our 501c3 status recently, which is very exciting. Public Health Connected is, is really about equipping people with tools that they can use to protect their health and the health of their communities, while also taking into account the other needs that they have in their life. Um, you know, their tools, the tools that we provide help people think about all the different things that the, the, all the different things in their lives, right? What's important to them, uh, what responsibilities they have, what constraints they experience, what they're comfortable with, and then help them make informed decisions that, that are really gonna work for them. And they're informed and they're uh, uh, making informed decisions that, that they can take some ownership of. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, I think that's, Kind of public health connects connected mission in, in a you know at its core. Can you give us an example? I can definitely give you an example. Um, so the the first we've worked been working on the first tool, right? We've we've developed the first tool, which uh, which is relates to COVID nineteen. Uh, not a surprise. That's that's a big thing happening in our world. Um, so. The, the tool that we've developed is to help people um, choose an in-person activity and then kind of work through a process to help them figure out, to make a plan. And either that plan, after they've thought through a, a number of different things, you know, maybe the plan is, you know what, I'm actually not going to do this in-person activity. I, I, I've thought about it. And, and I've thought about kind of the risk and impact and why it's important to me. And I'm not gonna go, I'm not gonna do it right now. Or I'm gonna try to find a virtual way to do it, a way that's not in person. Or maybe they say, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the activity, but I wanna make it as safe as possible. So we provide people with, with strategies that they can choose from to, to make things as safe as possible. I, if I go with the COVID example for a second, you know, I think I think a really great way to illustrate what we're doing is thinking about the shelter-in-place orders. That mm -hmm. you know, uh, so when someone is told to stay at home, to shelter in place, there are all these reasons why that can be difficult, right? So, you know, it may be that you don't feel like you can stay at home because you need to go to work because you need money to 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 maintain your housing, to feed your family. Um, it may be that you're in a situation where it's not very safe to stay at home. Like you're trying to minimize the amount of time that you're at home, right? Um, maybe it's that staying home means that it's harder to get the support that you need, either the professional support, but also just the support from people in your life. I know so many people have felt isolated and disconnected during the pandemic, right? By not by not having the same connections that they usually do. Um, so I think there are, and the one that I always like to actually say is, you know, if you stay at home, it's <clears throat> it's harder to have fun, right? And and although I think there's been a lot of, oh, there's been so much judgment. There's been so much judgment during this pandemic about, about people's choices and about people's priorities. Um, but, you know, I'm gonna argue that having fun is a basic human need. Yes. And I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that people go out and have fun 
and don't think at all about the consequences or don't think at all about the risk. But you know, let's 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 acknowledge that it's hard to stay at home, for example, if that limits your ability to like let off some steam or relax or you know enjoy yourself. So I think that I think that because there are these ways that what's happening in your life can can make it harder to protect yourself, right? We're trying to help people think about all of those needs, all of those considerations, and do something that's gonna that's that that is that is sort of the best fit for them. You bring a really uh, you bring a good example. It made me think of I, I did some work with a, some schools and I did some virtual interviews with some up and coming leaders. And I was doing an interview with a young lady who was a junior in high school, and she said, just a minute. And she turned and she, she was saying something offline. And then she said, sorry, but I have to share my room with six other people. Yeah. Yeah. And she, and she was at school. Yes. Right. I want to ask you something because I think this is important. And I was thinking as you were talking, Christy, I'd like you to go into the science of decision-making. How do people make decisions? Tell us about some of the, the background in that, even, even in, a, in a brief way that helps us understand about how people can make a plan. Because I couldn't say, I just kind of say, well, do I make, do I do planful decision-making or do I just act? I don't know. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah, you know, I actually do think that um, every decision we make, we make for a reason. Um, okay. I think that I think that sometimes that process is conscious. I think a lot mm -hmm. of times that process is unconscious. It's sort of automated. And so we don't recognize that we are in fact making a decision. Um, and that's, that's actually one of the things that I love about the DBT stuff that I'm doing, where it's about slowing everything down and being more mindful so that you can actually realize, okay, I made a choice here. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff about, uh, you know, responding to something versus reacting to something. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times we react um, when what we want to be able to do is respond, respond kind of, it's not that it takes the emotion out of it, but it, it takes the sort of panicked, intense emotion where you're really not able to access the parts of your brain that, that help you be logical and be um, methodical and kind of think things through, right? When you're, when you're really distressed, you're not thinking clearly. I mean, we all, we all have had that sense before, right? Well, it's like hitting the send key on that email where you're yelling at somebody and it's like, yeah. don't, don't, wait, wait, wait. wait. Take Do a step tomorrow. back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Tomorrow. So, so I do think that, um, I, I do think that, that whether we're aware of it or not, we do make decisions. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I, there are probably some things that we might do. Um, again, the thought process might be more complicated or less complicated. The decision might have more potential impact or less potential impact. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot about the sort of the, the brain chemistry of decision-making, although that would be a really interesting thing. <laughs> I would probably really enjoy learning more about that. Um, but uh, part of what happens for me to kind of get into uh, the, the mission of Public Health Connected and, and thinking about how this is um, relevant for COVID-19 is that during the pandemic, I saw how difficult it was for people to make decisions. And I, and I was, I was, my friend, JoLynn is, uh, JoLynn Montgomery uh, is the one I was writing the book with. And, you know, we're talking during the pandemic and it's like, well, well what are you, you know, what are you going to do about sending your kid to school? Or what are you, well, you know, what, what are you going to do about, about, you know, seeing your friends? And we, we were talking a lot about it. And it's, it, we realized like it wasn't, it wasn't even always easy for us to know how to make our decisions. And we're infectious disease epidemiologists, right? 
Absolutely. And, and as you were talking, and just before that, I just realized, maybe this was my moment of, oh, clarity here. Okay. Decisions are not equitable. Oh, no. My bandwidth of choices is very wide. Absolutely. And other people's are very, very narrow. And if in any cases, it's a no-win decision. Absolutely. Go to work or not feed my family. Catch it's COVID a, or, or, yeah. or be evicted. Abs- yes, 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 yes. And I think that a lot of, a lot of what determines the sort of range of decisions that people have uh, in their sort of decision-making you know, toolkit has to do with the social determinants of health. Oh my gosh, yes. So let's talk about that because I want you to speak into this concept of decision-making and public health. Fit the two together, connect the two for me. Yeah, well, Okay, so, so the reason I brought up the, the difficulty that JoLynn and I were having is because we realized that, um, you know, we also had a lot of tools at our, at our disposal, right, to, to make decisions. And we thought, I actually think that people can make informed decisions with some guidance on how that how that happens right like we know how to do this to some extent because we've been trained right i mean this is this is critical thinking i mean when mm-hmm. do you when do you learn critical thinking graduate school maybe a little bit in undergrad how many people don't go to graduate school or college or even finish high school this is why we wanted to create to write this book for high school students cuz we're like it's way, it's way too late to start talking about this in graduate school. So what we, what we did was to write a paper about how we as epidemiologists make decisions, how we think through COVID, which is to think about, you know, what's the risk, what's the potential impact, you know, and, and, and sort of what, based on the science, what are the different strategies that we can implement but recognizing that not everyone, so not everyone is going to make, be able to have the same choices and not everyone is going to be able to implement the same strategies. Some strategies are going to work for some people and they're not going to work for other people. And it's, and it's really about, about, about helping people choose what will work for them so that they can be successful. So there's, there's a lot in here about, about agency and self-efficacy and having a sense of control. So you asked me where this, where this uh, intersects with public health. So I do think that part of what people need to be able to make informed decisions, they need good information. They need evidence-based, scientifically sound information. That's one, of, that's one thing that they need. And you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there was so much misinformation out that you know, people didn't even know which way was up in terms of how it's actually contracted or, or, you know, how, what will help protect people. I mean, that was just, that was a mess. Um, So I think, I think that there's a public health, uh, like an education piece, a communications piece in there. Um, I do think it's also about, about acknowledging people's situations. And, you know, it is about thinking about what the determinants are of health are, and it's giving people the ability. I mean, I, I keep going back to this, but it's about giving people the ability to make their own choices. I know that it is much easier for someone to tell me what to do than it is for someone to say, hey, Christy, let me sit down and help you figure out what makes sense for you. I also know that if somebody tells me what to do, I may not do it and I'm not going to be super invested and it's probably not going to be a sustain. It's not going to be sustainable. But if somebody comes to me and says, Hey, I want to help you think through this. So you make your own decision. Now I'm more invested. I'm more, 
I'm more connected. I'm listening more. I know that it's difficult for people in public health, right? It's so much easier to say, just do this. Um, I can't, I, we had, there, there were these, um, these images that kept coming out. In fact, I just saw one the other day um, that, that would say, you know, here's a list of activities and some of them are in the green, which means that they're, they're okay to do. And some of them are in the orange, which means that they're like medium risk. And some of them are in the red, so you shouldn't do them. And what made me so frustrated with those, with those images was that activities are not inherently risky or not risky. It's about how you do them. It's going back to the basics of transmission, right? It's going back to the basics of how is, how is the virus transmitted? Okay, it's transmitted in this way. So it, the closer you are to someone, the more likely there is to be transmission. If you don't have a barrier, I mean, it's so, um, I, guess I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that I think, I think between sort of the science the, the, the education and communication piece, uh, but also the social determinants of health and the idea of, of agency self-efficacy and, and sense of control. I think that's where it fits into public health. I don't know, does that answer your question? Oh, it sure does. And, and you talked about education and communication. And I will often say that we also, also need translation. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of my sayings is the context matters. Yep. The yep. context of your willingness to take a risk. It's going to be different for someone who's from the suburbs with a great deal of privilege yep. versus someone who, who frankly might because of their, of their position or their status, they might not be able to do something that puts them at risk because if they, do, if they lose a paycheck, they don't have paid time off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so they won't be willing to take those risks that I can take because I have PTO. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, we have a and, lot of privilege, which is. It, oh, and, and public health has this, I, I was looking at Winslow's original definition. I'm starting a new class this fall and I was looking at Winslow's new definition. And I kept thinking they, it still is, they say it's still relevant, but I've kept saying, not for me, not that part. Mm -mm, it looks differently now. And it's yeah. like, I think sometimes in public health, and that, since we're in it, we can be critical of it because sure. we're trying to look at new solutions. Yes. We make things too complex and out of reach of the majority of the people that we're trying to connect with. You know, I agree with that. And I also think that there are times when we make things too simplistic. Without a doubt. So there needs to be that. <laughs> I really think the idea of the best public health is local public health. And, and that the idea of that, uh, you know, I want the government to, to protect me from anthrax, but I don't want them to protect me. I don't want necessarily, I want them not necessarily to protect my neighborhood. It's a, it's a two different, it's a different paradigm. And so the idea of, of one size of what public health is or is not, uh, and certainly, and you mentioned it already, the idea that I had a student there criticized me for bringing politics into public health. And I, I had news for them that all of public health is political. All of, yes, I totally, I totally agree. I think the other, the other piece that's important is uh, in terms of accessibility. So we've worked really hard when, when, in creating this tool to make it, it, it's written at about a fifth grade reading level. So to, to sort of try to remove the issue of, uh, of, of you know, reading skill. It, it's not something that you have to have a high education level or, or you have to have high level of uh, reading skills to use. We also, um, we've made it, you know, it's, it's very, <clears throat> It's, it uses very, you were talking about kindness and compassion before. It uses mm. a lot of compassionate language. Um, I, I love, I love that, that, I love that this happened. I was working with uh, some of the people who helped kind of put the tool together. Um, and I remember finding the word should in our, you know, our Google Doc. And I said, gosh, uh, how often do we use the word 
should. So we did a search. We did a search on the word should. And we hadn't used it very much, but we went back and looked at each and every one of those shoulds to make a conscious decision of whether that was the right word or maybe there was a better word. So we ended up only using should when it, it really was a should. If, you've, if you have COVID-19, you should not do any in-person activities right now. I think that's a should. But really everything else is a you could, you might, you might consider, you might think about. So I think um, maybe that's less of an accessibility issue, uh, but, but it is about trying to, trying, to, trying to speak to people in a way that they're gonna, they're gonna respond well to, they're gonna feel good about. We also, we also have uh, had it translated into Spanish. So everything that we have is in English and Spanish, you know, just trying to find ways to make this tool more and more accessible. And I think that's a huge focus of public health as well, right? It is an extremely important concept that's often overlooked. We, we, we all communicate. And frankly, one of my therapists says we bump into each other psychologically all the time. Yes, and, and <laughs> all so the time. We, 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 we cut ourselves and bleed all over people psychologically. Yep. But it's that notion. I just reviewed a, um, <clears throat> a curriculum and they use the word do and don't. And it's like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do or what not to do. And yet in public health, we do it every day. I know, I know. And, you know, especially, especially for communities that have, that have a history that has, that has uh, involved being told what to do and what not to do. And there are, there are unfortunately multiple, multiple communities that have had that experience. It's like, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to tell people what to do. That's, I, that's, that's not what I want to do. So in this regard, yeah. Tell us about how this, this show is sponsored by the CDC and we get, we're doing this around prevention for chronic disease, especially type two diabetes and, and people with hypertension. How might this tool be useful for organizations and community members in making decisions for their health? That's a great question. Um, well, I know for this particular tool, which is about COVID-19, um, we, we already know that people with a number of chronic diseases are in, at increased risk of severe COVID-19, right? Mm -hmm. Diabetes, asthma, COPD, HIV, I mean, there's just, there's a, a pretty long list actually. And so I think that for people who have those conditions, you know, what that, what that changes for them is not necessarily the risk of getting COVID-19, but it's the impact if they do get COVID-19, mm. right? And it's, and it's the impact on their health, which, which is going to, you know, potentially be greater than if they didn't have that chronic condition, but it's also on other parts of their lives. So, you know, as again, as someone who's experienced chronic pain for a long time, my chronic pain affects other parts of my life and COVID-19 also can affect different parts of your life. So I think that, I think that the tool can be very useful for people who are trying to, to figure out how do I manage, how do I protect myself from COVID-19 and still manage my, my chronic disease and all the sort of parts of my life that are affected by that? Um, so I think, that's, I think that's certainly a way that, that, the, that the tool can be, can be used. Um, so it, go ahead, keep going. <clears throat> so in terms of in terms, well, actually, you know, before I say what I was going to say, let me also say that this is particularly important right now. So we're in a we're in a point in our country right now where states are starting to open things up. The you know mandates and the restrictions are being lifted and loosened, and it's it's I think even harder for people 
who have concerns about what would happen if they get co got COVID-19 to know what to do. So it's, I think it's also, it's, you know, it's really important to get vaccinated, but some people can't get vaccinated. Some people have decided not to get vaccinated for whatever their reasons are, um, which makes it even more important to use other strategies. And even for people who have been vaccinated, no vaccine is 100% effective. That's, that's not a, that's not a thing. Um, and so, so still, you know, using that, I just, I want to say that because I don't want people to think, well, I've been vaccinated, so this doesn't really apply to me. I think it still very much applies. I think it still very much applies to people. Um, so that was one, that was one thing that I wanted to say. In terms of how uh, community-based organizations can use this, I think that there, I think there are I think there are some uh, some really good ways. I mean, one way, and this is this is I'm sorry, this is important for um, for us as an organization. We want to get these tools out to people in the community, to community members. But we recognize that it's it's the professionals and the community leaders that work in those communities that already have established relationships. So we really want to work with community-based organizations, uh, schools, um, healthcare providers, public health organizations, faith leaders and institutions, advocacy organizations. I mean, they're the people who have the, that already have that, that relationship and that trust. We wanna really work with them so that they can introduce this tool to the people that they serve. Um, because I think that, I think that that's, you know, this is not a tool that, this is not one of those risk sheets that you look at for five seconds and you go, oh, I want to go to the beach. Oh, nope, going to the beach, high risk activity, I'm not going to do it. Okay, so great, you did that in five seconds. This is not a five second thing. This might take you 10 minutes to work through for an activity because you're thinking about it, because you're investing in your own decision making, right? And so that, that trust between providers and, and leaders and the community members is really, really important. Um, but in terms of ways that, that professionals could, can use this, I mean, the sort of simplest way is to just let your community members know about Safer COVID-19, about Public Health Connected, and that, that there is this free tool, this free resource that, um, that could be helpful. Uh, another way is to, so we have our tool, it's a web-based tool, and we also have a downloadable printable version, the workbook version, because we of course recognize that not everyone has access to the internet and not everyone is comfortable using the internet. So um, to, to print out copies of the workbook and leave them around the senior center or leave them around, you know, the support group or, or whatever it is, or, or, you know, mail it to somebody so that they have it. I think that's a way that organizations can help. I also think that organizations, I mean, this is a resource for them, right? We want this to be a resource for, 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 you know, other professionals. So they could use this um, in a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Let's say you're sitting down with a patient and they have questions about, you know, concerns. I have diabetes and I'm really concerned now that, you know, now that uh, the mask mandates are being lifted and, and everything's sort of going back to normal, I'm, I'm feeling really worried about how to still keep myself safe, right? So you could sit down and you could work through the tool with someone. You could, you could talk to them about it, or you could do it in a group setting, which to me is even better because the power of being able to think about this process and make your decisions and then talk to other people about how they made their decisions and how they thought about it. I think that's really empowering. I think, and it, I think it also, um, uh, it sort of strengthens the, the knowledge that you've gotten from that process. Uh, I think it just has even, even more impact. So that's certainly something that, that people could do. You said something early on that I want to have you comment on. And it, right. again, I'm having these, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. I think about it this way now. <laughs> the idea of someone's diabetes, someone's chronic pain, doesn't just impact themselves, 
but it impacts people in their lives. And frankly, with COVID, those that they may come into contact with. Absolutely. And so the ability to make decisions, not only that will impact me, <clears throat> but those around me should be taken seriously. Yep. And that's, I mean, that's why our mission statement includes, uh, you know, the, to the people, you know, your health, but also the health of your community. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's right in our mission statement. That's really important. And if it's in the context of infectious diseases, it's sort of clear how what you do is going to affect the people around you. But I think I think even for decision making around other things that are not that don't have a transmission component, I think still what we do affects the people around us, right? The decision I make affects my husband, it affects my daughter, it affects my my parents, my friends. And you know, so yes, I agree with you. I think that that piece is very, very important. Well, frankly, we can say that we need greater connectedness in the world as opposed to disconnectedness in the world. So, uh, we, you know, we have this idea of polarization and isolation and politicalization, yep. frankly, that uh, I think many people, I think everyone is tired of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny when we were trying to come up with a name for the organization and, the, you know, like throwing all these different ideas around and I... I really did like the idea of public health connected um, for a lot of reasons. But I have to say that over the course of the past almost year, it, it's, it just keeps growing on me. I keep finding more and more reasons that I'm like, that is the perfect name for us. It is public health connected. There's no other name. That is the name. That is the name. Absolutely. That's it. So tell us what you see in the future. Yeah. What do I see in the future? Well, you know, in the in the sort of shorter term future, uh, I really want to keep working to make this a sustainable organization, um, which means you know, applying for funding and building our our sort of governance and uh, strengthening our volunteer base, things like that. Um, but I. And I, and I really want to continue to work to get safer COVID-19 into people's hands so that they can decide whether it's useful for them. Because um, I do think that it's, I think that it's got a lot of potential to be very powerful. Um, you know, sort of longer term than that, I wanna be really clear that Public Health Connected is not an organization that is just focused on COVID-19. Mm -hmm. That's our first project. But we're going to have lots of other projects and we're going to address a lot of other health issues. Um, I don't know what those are going to be yet. And part of the reason I don't know what they're going to be yet is because that decision needs our decision about what is the next, uh, you know, what other health issues to address needs to be based on what people in various communities tell us. We need a community assessments. We really, we want to listen, right? We want to listen to people and, and respond to, to what the need is. But there will be other tools that deal with other, other both emerging and existing health issues. Another thing I think that's, uh, that I, I see in our future is um, thinking about the idea of, you know, everybody being connected. You know, right now we're focused on the United States, but I think there are opportunities to take this global because we're, we're connected all over the planet. And, um, and I do have this, I've worked internationally. I mean, I have this perspective. I, I think that that's, uh, you know, that's also an opportunity for us as an organization to be thinking about how we make it applicable. And, and um, so I would, I would love to get this uh, at a place where I can have a, an impact that is global. Um, I want to have. I want to get our tools translated into lots of different languages. Right now, we've got English and Spanish, but I've I've had a lot of people have asked me questions about translations into other languages. Um, I think that would be really exciting, as well to to make this accessible. Christy, my last question is: What's the legacy of this for your daughter's daughter? 
Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of a in terms of a vision, I I really, you know, I want people to be able to make these informed decisions about their health, and that's you know this is going to be something that you know people that that is going to need work for <laughs> for a long time. This is not an easy thing to sort of fix, but. Um, you know, I think that I think that really the legacy that I can leave my daughter's daughter is um, is to is to have an awareness that this matters. Mm. I think it's really important to. There also it almost needs to be like a like a like a paradigm shift or a cultural mm. shift in public health to start thinking of like you said not the not making public health really complicated, not making public health, you know, overly simplistic, but finding that middle ground where we can, we can put more control into people's hands. I'll tell you what, I think that there are lots of ways in which we in public health uh, and, and certainly in other areas too, approach people with the assumption that they don't have enough education or they don't, they're not going to understand it they're not, it's not going to, you know, they're not capable. Mm. And what I want to do is I want to approach people as if they're, as if they're fully capable. I think that that is very important. Um, of course, of course, we're going to be conscious of the reading level. Of course, we're going to make sure that it's available in different languages. I mean, of course, we're going to do the things that, that we can do. But I want to assume that people can make these decisions for themselves. And I think that people can. And so that maybe is the legacy, is like a shift in the thinking about what people are capable of. You know, I think it comes back to your parents and perhaps their parents, how they were kind and that they were inquisitive and that dad did math games with you that... We are still doing that with our kids and you'll do that with your grandkids. And that is a, that is a wonderful life led and a wonderful legacy. Yeah. Christy, how do people get a hold of, uh, of you and or where can they find you and where can they find Public Health Connected? Yes. So um, we have an organizational website. It's very simple. It's www.publichealthconnected.com. Um, the, my email is there. It's, it's my name, Christine McClamrock at publichealthconnected.com. But if you get to the website, you can certainly um, contact me that way. Uh, we also have a separate website that's for safer COVID-19. And there is a, if you go to the Public Health Connected website, there's a link that will take you to that other website, which is where you can access the tool, the workbook. We have a nice partner toolkit um, for organizations to, to promote this. Uh, so yeah, I think the website is the way to do it. Fantastic. This has been a joy to get to know you and let my audience get to know you. Anything else you want to tell us? No, I, I'm really honored to, to be invited to this podcast and have a chance to, to let people know what we're doing. Um, so just, yeah, thank you. Huge thank you, David. Well, I hope you'll come back again and in, in, in 10 years, we'll, we'll see how we're doing about how this is looking and uh, yeah. uh, hear an update on your daughter as well. Uh, Dr. Christy McClamrock, thank you for coming on the Days of Learning podcast. Thank you. Thank you. What a fascinating discussion I had with Dr. Christy McClamrock. She talked about her early life with her father and her mother who talked about being caring individuals, about being connected to community. And she talked about some later work that around decision-making and this notion that public health connected is a tool that can be used in decision-making is relevant in a pandemic environment and in a post-pandemic environment. We know that not all communities and situations are created equally, 
nor are they equitable. But with tools like Public Health Connected and with people like Christy McClamrock, we certainly can hopefully bring community, country, and even the world closer together around issues that impact all of us. For Days of Learning podcast, I am your host, David Nelson. Be well and good health to you and to yours. <laughs>